Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, Noah here. Before this episode, I wanted to make a quick apology. This episode was due to be published last week, but on Friday, after we recorded the episode and whilst I was editing it, I got a call telling me that my grandmother had tested positive for COVID. A few days later, she passed away, and I've taken some time away from work to be with my family. Over that time, I've reflected a lot on just how, sadly, common weeks like mine have been for families all over the world for the past few years. And while that does nothing to change my situation, what it does really underscore for me is the need for us to keep talking about COVID and keep remembering that the pandemic isn't over. The more we know, the more we talk about it, the quicker we might be able to bring some of the pain the pandemic has caused to an end. And so thanks for bearing with me and let's get back to the episode recorded last week but published a little after the fact. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. We're entering a new era now. We have new COVID strategies. There's some new unknowns and we've got a vaccine. Hello and welcome to Coronapod. I'm Noah Baker and joining me is Worldview editor Monya Baker. Monya, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. So today we're going to talk data. Now there's kind of two ways we're going to talk data. One is about how we get hold of data and the other is about what we do with it or what sort of, more importantly, countries, large organisations do with it. Both of those things are topics that you've had columns on recently in the Worldview section. And a big part of the reason why we're talking about data right now, apart from the fact that scientists love data, data is important, data is vital, is also because there's a kind of a growing feeling around the world that data gathering, we don't need as much now because we're in a different phase of the pandemic. And to give you an example of where this kind of feeling is coming from for me, the UK has just announced that it's going to end all COVID restrictions. And one of the things that is going to go with that is the end of mass testing, free mass testing that we with a nationalised healthcare service have been lucky enough to have for the last year or so. But ending mass testing, aside from the fact that it means that we're going to be spending less money on testing, also means an awful lot less data is going to be gathered about who's infected, where they're infected, when they're infected, and so on. And that can have really big knock-on impacts. And the UK isn't the only place where this is happening. So I think we'll get to why data is important, especially for the pandemic in a moment. But first, I think we should stick to testing. Tell us, why is it that we think this is kind of column-worthy at the moment? So that column is by a biostatistician, Natalie Dean. And she argues that the data that is being collected now is becoming less and less 
reliable for for several reasons. One is that because people can test at home and that those data are not reported, the data that are getting reported tend to be a much smaller fraction of people who are going to um, testing centers for molecular testing. And those are the people who can get to a center, who have time to get to a center, and who are either particularly sick or particularly worried. So if mass testing is being ramped down and people are not going to hospital as much or not going to get tested as much because perhaps the disease they're experiencing, the symptoms are less severe or maybe they're asymptomatic completely, how can we monitor COVID transmission in a population if it's not from people going to get diagnostic tests when they feel sick? Are there other ways to do it? Yes. So if people live in a community where when they flush the toilet, that goes to a wastewater treatment facility, that wastewater can be monitored. And you can track whether copies of genes of the virus are going up or if they are going down. And that is an unbiased way to know if infection rates are getting higher or getting lower. But it leaves out a lot of important information. Right. So it leaves out, importantly, who is being infected in a population. But you can tell if the infections are rising or falling. But there are other ways of trying to work out who is being infected still without having to have those diagnostic tests done by people who feel sick. Tell us about those approaches. So a random sampling approach can be extremely powerful. Just collecting data from, say, a thousand carefully selected people can reflect on a population of millions of people. And a random sampling program that was done in the UK found something quite surprising. In January, they found that about one in 20 people were infected, but one in 10 young children were infected. So this was an unrecognized pool of of infectious people with huge implications for what behaviors could stop the spread. If you don't do random sampling, you don't know what parts of the population are getting sick. You don't know if it's old people. You don't know if it's young people. You don't know if it's certain ethnic groups. You don't know if it's certain professions. And if you don't have that information, it's really hard to know what interventions could work. Wastewater monitoring tells you whether or not to staff up hospitals random sampling gives you a lot more information. So it feels like a lot of scientists would argue that random sampling is the way to go, but you never get a free lunch. There must be a catch. So uh, one concern for random sampling is that people have to be willing to participate. The less willing people are to participate, the higher the barrier. So it might be particularly difficult in a, a polarized country like the US. There's a government program asking people to to send in samples It is expensive. It takes a lot of time and care, but bad information is also expensive. Yeah, exactly right. And we know there are many countries that this is just outside of their ability to do because of the expense. But even for wealthy nations, when we're talking about public health interventions, things like lockdowns, for example, or restricting businesses, that's incredibly expensive as well. And if you're making those decisions based on data that isn't complete, then there's a very strong argument that you're making a considerably bigger financial loss by making the wrong decision than you would be if you had all those data in the first place. Yeah, Natalie Dean says something about how you can put data into a model and sort of get some smart guesses about forecasting the future. But if you're not having reliable data, then you're putting guesses into your tool for making guesses, which is is not a good way to get a reliable forecast. And, And random sampling could really fill out a lot of those gaps in knowledge. 
Right, that reminds me a little bit of when we talked about how you estimate death from COVID. And one of the things that our colleague David Adam mentioned in that was that you can have models, but without the data, the error bars are so huge, they can be nigh on useless. But once you add data into them, it's amazing how quickly they can constrain because these models rely on data. That is what they run on. That's what makes them work. I remember looking at the graphs in that feature and it was like the error bars filled up the whole y-axis. It was insane. But then again, data shrinks those error bars. And as you were saying, random sampling is a way that we can start to get those data. Where in the world are these kind of random sampling approaches happening? Because they're not that widespread. The UK is one example where it actually has been, I guess, a model example for the world, right? Yes, and that program is actually up for the chopping block. It was uh, put forward as something that needed to be cut. I'm not sure that it has been cut. I think that's a, a public input. But yeah, the UK is ready to stop this expensive program. It actually has not been done very much. There are a few states in the US that have done it, but they haven't been able to do it for very long. They ha- it, hasn't been, it hasn't been very sustained. I don't know that there's any states that are doing it right now. Now, one of the things which I think is really important for us to discuss when we talk about this sort of thing, especially the concept of random sampling being potentially cut, the few that exist in the world, and things like mass testing being slowed or stopping in places, is whether or not now is the time to do it. I guess the argument from politicians is we're not seeing as many people in hospitals anymore. The rates of transmission are going down. We need to open up. We need restrictions to be reduced. And so therefore, we don't need this testing anymore. But I think scientists would strongly disagree. I I, I think that there's a sense that for a lot of people, the restrictions are easing, concerns are ebbing. So the need for data is easing. But my authors are arguing that now is the time to make the data better. It might be true that that hospitalizations are going down, that transmission appears to be decreasing. But that does not go hand in hand with we don't need testing anymore. Because testing is the way that you ensure that those numbers continue to go down or you react if they if they start to go back up again. And we aren't in a place right now in the pandemic that we can take our hands off the wheel. In fact, it's really vital we keep our hands on the wheel right now. And um, it would be relatively straightforward to adapt a random sampling plan to monitor for diseases besides coronavirus. There's a lot of problems that respiratory viruses cause. And so you could multipurpose this kind of surveillance. Absolutely. So potentially, if you want to kind of get more bang for your buck, then you continue doing these sampling processes, but you add more diseases in there. So you add more things that you can get early warnings for, which I suppose gives you more of a return on that not trivial investment. Exactly. And I suppose we also really need to think about what's happening elsewhere in the world. The kinds of detailed data which are gathered in places like the UK and the US can also act somewhat as a proxy for places where data isn't being gathered or isn't able to be gathered elsewhere in the world. You know, we monitored the Omicron spread in large part outside of the places that Omicron originated because that's the places where we had really, really good data. And that informs many countries all over the world about how Omicron spreads, about what kinds of things might be useful to try to prevent that spread. And so if the UK stops its testing programs or the US states stop their testing programs, that has implications all over the world. What's really, really crazy is how much of the data aggregation, data presentation, basic analyses have 
bid done by scrappy volunteers. We have Johns Hopkins, we have uh, Our World in Data there, and other organizations and grassroots initiatives at private universities that are telling us what fraction of the global population has been vaccinated and tallying global death counts. Does that sound like the kind of task that should be left to the people who just raise their hands? I mean, it should be someone's job. Right. And this takes us into the other column that you have recently published. So this was actually written by the head of data at Our World and Data, Edouard Mathieu, talking specifically about this problem. Even if people, countries, organisations are reporting statistics about transmission, about death, about hospitalisation, whatever it is, they're often coming in a thousand different formats. And so if you want to get a global picture, you need someone to collate those. And you might think, hey, the WHO will do that. The WHO isn't doing that, certainly not in a very detailed way. And that's what places like Johns Hopkins or Our World in Data are trying to do. And they're running out of data too. And so they're raising the alarm now as well. Edward is calling for a cultural shift where governments routinely provide data in a way that other people can use it. I talked to him for a while and and he said that one thing that really frustrates him is that just like any job, you want to show your boss in government that you've done something. And the best way to do that, or a good way to do that, is to show a pretty dashboard that displays all sorts of numbers in an attractive way. But people are doing that and not supplying the underlying data in a simple text form that people who compile and visualize data can use. And so he wants to see a cultural shift where just providing that data is just considered a routine responsibility of governments. And he he would like to see um, the WHO step in and coordinate that because when the WHO does collect data, it's in a much more consistently formatted way. He talks about how much of the way the data they're using is being gathered is you know, sometimes it's from low resolution images on Facebook posts, because that's how that particular government of that particular country is posting its data. It's a very difficult thing for a computer to read. And so what you want is just very computer readable, simple lists. And then the models can be made by other people. The WHO can make the dashboard that will make it look pretty and so on. Really, the data is the core bit, not the dashboard it lives in. Exactly. He says, you know, a lot of governments are very used to interacting with journalists or an audience that just wants the top line current figures. That's all they want. And that's all governments think to provide, but that's not what the global health community needs. It's not what people doing data visualization need. They need consistently formatted data over time. And that's what many governments are not providing. Yeah, I mean, he gives examples of how there are some governments that may perhaps early in the pandemic have paid a consultancy to make a dashboard for them so that they can have something they can present to the world's media, present to their people that show these core pieces of information. But that was a one-time job. They paid this consultancy to make the dashboard and the consultancy left. And then the pandemic changed. New variants arised. There were vaccines, there were boosters. And this dashboard doesn't have the capacity to do those things because those things didn't exist when it was built. But the people that built it, the consultants that built it, are no longer in the employ of the government. And so those data just get left off. But they're really important data. And again, it sort of really highlights the value of focusing on the data first, not the presentation. Exactly. It's always tough when someone is calling for the World Health Organization to take on a new task because the funding for that organization is so, so fractured and the bureaucracy is so built in. But 
there are examples of global organizations doing that effectively. The World Bank used to frustrate a lot of global health people to no end. They said it was hugging data. And now it's considered a really good source of all kinds of global data on everything from agriculture to health. And it's held up as an exemplar of an organization that can change. And the hope is the WHO will be able to take a leaf out of the World Bank's book and start collating data on public health, especially in this situation, in a similar way. Right, because if people take their eyes off the pandemic now, they're inviting opportunities for it to get worse. We have incredibly computer literate individuals all over the world that can do things like build dashboards cleverly if you have the right kind of data. Famously, there were three teenagers in Australia that built a vaccination dashboard out of data that was being released that the Australian government hadn't yet done, but the teenagers did. And it is really heartening to know that people like those three or like Our World in Data, which is a group in Oxford, or like Johns Hopkins, they can do this. And there are scientists around the world that are ready to do this but they need the data to do it in the first place. And that's where we need governments to step in and help provide that, or the WHO to step in and help collate that. And also there needs to be more support for governments to set up reporting systems. I looked up what fraction of countries actually issued death certificates. It's lower than you would think. There are a lot of countries that simply don't have the means to track data. So that's something that needs to be considered as well. Okay, so still reasons to be hopeful. As it stands, the UK's random testing programme has not stopped. Perhaps it won't. I will cross my fingers that it will not. But in the meantime, Monia, thank you so much. I look forward to speaking to you again. Me too. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.